We're in Romans chapter 12, and we come to this rich passage. And uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, and I think about Americans, one thing is uh, true about us, we are independent people. You know, we, are, we pride ourselves in our freedom, pride ourselves in the, you know, li- living in the home of the brave, in the land of the free. And the idea is that no one will tell us what to do. We are free. We do what we please. We're not conformed by outside influences in any way, and we get the mindset that there's no one who stands over us in authority. We have certain inalienable rights that we live by, certain privileges. Our Constitution gives us these things, and we get to operate by them. Some may even believe that they live free of any outside influence, free of any outside pressure to conform them into any image. But I want to point out to you that we're in God's creation, and God has woven within his creation natural pressures that conform us. It's just within his design. It's inherent in God's design. Think about a child entering into this world. What happens? As soon as the child enters into this world, not only do parents start to care for the child and and protect the child and feed it, but the parents begin to train the child as soon as they enter the world. We train our kids how to sleep, how to eat, how to show manners, how to relate to authority, how to relate to one another. They're being conformed into an image And every family has a measure in which they're conforming their child to some measure and to some degree. This is inherent in God's design. You move into a new state, a new country, you begin to be influenced by that country's values, that culture's values. You go to work, your work trains you how to be a proper employee and to carry out the duties there in that work environment. You go to school, your school seeks to conform you into its image. Wherever you go, you're under a pressure of conformity. We can't escape it. There are pressures all around us. And as I was thinking through it, I found at least eight pressures, eight ways in which we have these Uh, dynamics that are at work to seek to conform us. There is the compliance, the idea, again, that states and, and countries set up laws and regulations that call us to compliance to those regulations. If you violate those regulations, you are then, you have natural consequences. So there's a governmental compliance that shapes us and forces us to act according to a typical practice. Culture shapes us. Customs you practice, the things you value, things you do that you think are normal because of the culture you live in uh, shape you. You don't really notice it until you leave your culture and you head to somebody else's culture and all of a sudden they do things differently than you do. And then you say, you're weird. My culture is right. I remember heading to South America where you know, in our culture here, we are punctual. Start on time, we, everything is according to the clock, you head to South America, and it's generally around this time period something starts. So almost every year when I head to Argentina, it becomes laughable because they say, the conference starts at 8.30, I know that means 9.15. I've already just factored it in my mind. It's generally you start showing up at 8.30, but we're not going to get this thing going until 9.15. Culture shapes us. The values of our culture, the customs of our culture, the uh, circumstances in which our culture operates shape us. And then there are super cultures. There are then groups and nations gathering together to create a, a broader cultural influence. We're seeing this more and more uh, nowadays as the world is quickly shrinking with all of technology, we can watch wars that are taking place right now on our phones or on our TV. We can see what's happening in the front lines. In this kind of super culture, when we're rallying around common uh, things like sports or others, there's influence happening in a super cultural influence. 
kind of see this taking place in the UN and things like that as they are identifying values and practices. You see a super culture influence. There are also subcultures. So that while you will have within a group various little subcultures that rally around a certain practice, a certain desire, a certain custom. These subcultures have influence on us. There are then those who say, I'm not going to go by any culture. And so they are then countercultural. Who wherever the culture is heading, they're going to head in the opposite direction so as to demonstrate that they won't be conformed to the culture. They then are conformed to counterculture. Of course, you have social pressures. In fact, people have set up jobs just to be influencers. And in today's day and age with influencers, social pressure to try to conform us to a particular image. Then, of course, you have what's happening in each man's heart, the kind of self-censorship that takes place in our own heart. Our own convictions, our own values, our own fears, our own desires, all these things shape us in a situation and cause us to act. And then lastly, I think of traditions. Certain families, certain areas have traditions, and in those traditions, you practice certain things. If you want to know what traditions are, just come to my house. We will show you all of our traditions every year that are practiced regularly. These pressures, these outside influences shape us all the time. And sometimes we're aware of it, and other times we're not aware of it. They're all at work. You cannot escape these particular pressures of conformity. This is by God's design, God's influence. I was chuckling to myself just thinking about the idea of these uh, outside influences that shape us. If we all lived in North Korea right now, we would have the choice of 28 hairstyles. There are 28. In fact, the government limits haircuts to 28. They have 18 for women and 10 for men. Naturally, more for women than for men. But in that, they say you can only have one of these 28 styles. It's conformity. Here's how you must present yourself. It's cultural conformity. Again, we live in a time in which we are conformed. This is within God's design. No one can escape this. For if you're going to fellowship with people and be around people, you're going to be under influence to conformity. Question for us then is that when that culture, when that system, that government, or some other group moves against the design of God, what keeps us on track? That's the question. The answer is that it's faith in Christ. It's faith. Growing, maturing, robust faith that believes the word of God and entrusts oneself to the truth that we are able to be conformed into the image of Christ. But our faith isn't always strong. It isn't always maturing. It isn't always able to resist. And we find ourselves failing. We find ourselves falling short. Could be because of the corruption of within our own heart. We actually desire the worldly things. And so our own heart's corruption is bent towards evil. That could be a cause for our falling short. Or sometimes it's because of the temptations or trials themselves are so varied, so subtle, uh, that we don't catch the significance of the temptation before us and we give into it and are conformed to a worldly ideology. Or we just don't have a spiritual game plan prepared so that we are able to resist in the the day of temptation because we're not training ourselves to be prepared for that challenge. Any one of these reasons may cause us to fall short and be led into conformity with the world. As I was thinking about this, I think oftentimes our failure comes because we don't have the right kind of biblical faith. The right kind of faith which is a a transforming faith. In fact, I've just identified, I think I've identified at least four inadequate expressions of faith. Let me just give them to you so you can kind of get an assessment. 
There's one that we would call a shallow faith. This would be inadequate because it's not going to be able to endure. This is what makes these first four inadequate. The fifth, which would be then God's design. First, the shallow faith. This is described in Matthew chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. When talking about the seed and the sower, and the seed was cast on the ground, and the seed fell on the rocky soil. And it's described there that that seed grew and it quickly responded, but because underneath the soil was a rock bed, it didn't have deep roots. It was a shallow kind of faith. They had an immediate response or immediate affirmation of the truth, immediate belief or confirmation that that is true, but it couldn't resist the day of difficulty. Verse 6 says, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. The shallow faith was unable to stand in the day of trial and difficulty. It was unable to resist. So this is false, first kind of weak or inadequate faith. It is shallow, not formed around convictions, not formed around truth, not formed around godliness. It's not formed around the things of God. It pulls away from God under the days of difficulty. That is the diagnosis of the shallow faith. It's evidenced by the fact that when trials and difficulties come, it flees from doing what is right. It's shallow. The other kind of inadequate faith is that which we would call a temporal faith. This is the idea of somebody at one point in time having made a profession never to return back to such a state. Never to be confused again as one who actually practices the things that they confess. They just simply stated it at one point in time. And the rest of their life they live as a memorial to that one day, that one moment, that one profession that they had made that they then tell everyone that on this day, at this moment, at this time, at this place, this is when I said it. I said the magic words. I said I believed Jesus. It's a temporal kind of faith. The diagnosis of that one is that it's a kind of faith that, again, is only recognized by a particular event in time, a memorial. Third kind of faith, and again, the reason why that faith fails is because when the day of testing comes, it does not seek to conform to that message. The third kind of faith that is weak and is what we'll call a malnourished faith. This is the kind of faith, again, that has believes upon God, but is not prepared for the challenges. It's malnourished. It doesn't know where to go to practice, to know the truth and practice the truth. And it is, it is malnourished either by personal neglect, it is not striving to come to understand the truth. Or when the truth is presented, someone's not working to know what's being presented. They're very passive in their pursuits. Or it's malnourished because of pastoral neglect. We do not have shepherds who are opening up the scriptures and explaining the scriptures so as to inform the heart and the conscience. It is malnourished. So when it comes to the day of testing, there's no strength. When it comes to the day of trial, there's no ability to resist because it isn't strengthened with solid food. It is immature. You can see this described in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. A malnourished, weak faith. And the fourth kind of weak faith that is unable to resist the conformity of the world today is what I will call an emotional faith. This is on the rise today, this kind of emotional faith. And the idea of this faith is that I must have a, an affection for God, a true desire for God, a passion for Him. And out of that affection, desire, or passion, out of these strong emotions, I'm going to draw near to God, come to Him. And if I don't have that passion, then I can't obey Him. I need to have the passion first. I need to have the desire for him first. I need to have this affection for him. And it's out of this desire, affection, passion for him that leads me to do what's right. Instead of believing the truth and yielding in your heart to the truth, you're waiting for an emotion to come and drive you. This kind of faith, again, is weak because the passions don't come. 
and the day of testing. Passions may actually be corrupted by the flesh as you actually desire worldliness more than desiring righteousness. And therefore, there's a war in the midst of your struggle. And you think, well, I know I can't desire you know, worldly things, but my passions are longing for it. I should be desiring righteous things, but my passions aren't there. And if I just do what's right, aren't I a hypocrite? A person is stuck trying to get their fickle emotions in line to do what's right so that they can honor God. That is an emotionally driven faith. All of those are inadequate expressions of biblical faith. All of those are inadequate expressions of maturity because the kind of faith that produced in the gospel is this. It's a transforming faith. A transforming faith. And this is what's described for us in Romans 12, 1 through 8. What Paul marks out for us in this passage actually are six marks of a faith-filled man, a faith-filled person. Somebody who is marked again by a transformation, a growing transformation. And what we've seen thus far is this. We saw the first two marks the last time we met is a life marked by total surrender. We see that in verse 1. One, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's more, a life marked by total surrender is the first evidence of a transforming faith. Urgently, this call is made, as Paul says there, I urge you, brethren, he is making a passionate plea for them. He's urgent. Be careful. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Is a passionate plea on Paul's part to call us to be in submission to Christ. We are to be motivated by mercy, he says that, by the mercies of God. Because of God's lavish outpouring of mercies, we are to be motivated. Because he has withheld his wrath. Again, what's the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is the giving of us a gift we don't deserve. Mercy is the withholding from us punishment we do deserve. So in mercy, it is withhold, God's withholding his judgment from us, withholding his wrath, is motivated, we are motivated by God holding back that wrath, that judgment. We're motivated to lay our lives down as personal sacrifice. And that is the third aspect of this total surrender. It is sacrificial, you li- as a living sacrifice. Laying down our lives sacrificially, we give all to God sacrificially as a living sacrifice. And is, because it is living, it is precious and valuable. So he says there, in regards to it's holy, it is living and holy sacrifice is a valuable sacrifice and then lastly we noticed it was measured by God acceptable to God as he says there in verse one God is the one who measures this sacrifice we don't measure it certainly our emotions don't measure it certainly the cultural values around us don't measure it the the groups we're a part of doesn't measure this work God himself measures it our own personal values don't measure the value of this surrender Because we might think we're working really hard. We might think we're really sacrificing. We're really striving. It really doesn't matter what our assessment is. What matters is this, that this is acceptable to God. He is the one who measures. He measures our life. He measures our surrender. And the second element we saw at the end of verse 1 there was then our life is marked by humble submission of the mind. A humble submission of the mind. It says there, which is your spiritual service of worship? Literally the phrase, which is the logical or reasonable service. This is logical. It's only logical, it's only reasonable that in coming to God, you lay yourself down in this way based on all that he has done for us. It is only, the word is logicon, it is only reasonable, logical that this happens. 
that our life is dedicated to worship, our life is dedicated to service, our life is dedicated to devotion to God because of what he has accomplished for us. When we were in rebellion, Romans chapter 3, when we were filled with corruption, when we were outside of the promises of God, he justified us. When he set us free through Christ to live as slaves of righteousness, Romans chapter 6, when he gave us his spirit, Romans chapter 8, so that by his spirit we overcome the deeds of the flesh, it's only logical then we give ourselves wholly to God entirely. And that word worship there, latria, is used five times in the New Testament and is always used around the context of worship or service. It speaks of the highest time of devotion and dedication to God. We're worshiping God. We're serving God. It is only logical then that we have a faith that is lived in such a way to bring worship and devotion to God. That's the first two demonstrations of the mark of a transformed life. Now, Paul is going to continue to give us four more. And we're going to look at the next one this morning, which is this. We resist the world. The beginning of verse 2. It's a life marked by total surrender. It's a life marked by a humility of the mind. And now it is a life marked by resisting the world. Notice the beginning of verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. This is the exhortation that Paul makes here to call us to be separate from the world. The Christian life is started in verse 1. The force of verse 1 is Paul's urgent plea. Paul, as an apostle, pleading with his audience, listen carefully, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the force of verse 1. But the force of verse 2 is different. Now Paul moves from a personal plea to now a direct exhortation. This is a command in verse 2. First of all, a negative command. Do not be conformed to the world. Then a positive command, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He moves from personal plea as a, as a beloved apostle and friend to now an exhorting authority. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be in a place where this world shapes you and forces you into its mold. That's the idea. Conformity. To be shaped into a mold. And in my mind... What I see here is the industrial machines that operate today where you'll have a machine that will blow up some kind of plastic and then a mold will come around it and shape it into an image. You look at our gas cans or things like that. There's a mold that came and took that plastic and formed it into a particular product. That's the idea here. Do not be in a place where the world shapes you into its image. Literally that word, do not be conformed, is a command, so that's an imperative, but is also in the passive voice, meaning it is something that is happening to us. Do not be in a place where the world outside of you is conforming you into its image says this, and basically the idea for us is this, we do not live in a place or time of neutrality. You're in a place where there is an active force working against you. That's our day and age. It's this one more word there we want to look at before we kind of unpack this, is that word world there. Do not be conformed to this world. What's the idea of world? It's not the word cosmos here. Cosmos would mean the physical world, the physical creation. This is the word ion, and is translated as age. Uh, so it is this age, the ideology and practice of this age. It says, do not be conformed to this age, is literally the translation. 
Same word is used in Ephesians 1.21. says, speaking of Christ, who has a dominion and rule over all names and every name that has been named. It says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is the ruler over all people in all ages, says there. The idea here is that we are not to be conformed to the pressures and the practices of this age. Now, this is important to kind of see how this works. Because we're not necessarily aware of the operations. We're not aware of the influences. In fact, if you started to do studies on just advertising and things like that, they purposely place products in the stores in different locations to get you to buy that. We know that as parents, as soon as you walk in the checkout line and they put the candy right at the two-year-old, three-year-old's eye level. You put the best things right there for them to desire and long for those items, and they trust that we're poor parents and we're not going to say no to our kids. Forming us, we're in this age. Turn over to Romans 1 because Paul explains this kind of external pressure and conformity right at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 to give us kind of insight into what is happening. Romans 1, we know the passage well from verses 18 through following. He described the condition of man, first of all, from 18 to 23. Notice, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what is he described here? He's describing, first of all, God's active judgment of ungodliness and the active resistance of man to, su- to suppress the truth. To suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was, dark, was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what Paul describes here then is man's suppressing of the truth written on his heart. Evident within man was a knowledge of God and his ways. He can look out at creation. He can see God's invisible attributes. He can see God's divine power, his eternal power and divine nature. He can understand there is a God by looking around in creation, and yet man hardens his heart against that, and as a result is darkened in his mind Even though he sees himself as superior, though man sees himself as wise, he is actually foolish. To which then God's response, and there was three times. Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. God turned man over to his own corruption. He turned man over to the influences and passions of his own heart. Head into corruption. And that corruption then manifests itself and corruption in his passions and desires, corruption in his pursuits, it led to his own self-destruction. This is, again, an example of living in a godless age. An age of hostility, an age of opposition, an age of rejection, an age that moves away from God and God's stance. And when God judges, as described here, God judges by pulling back his restraining grace. God judges when he pours out his judgment upon a nation, he pulls back his restraining influences and turns man over to his own natural passions and desires. And that man then is conformed to the image of this world. 
The very thing that we are called to resist in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, is the natural state of all people before faith in Christ. Which, by the way, faith in Christ is to be the exact opposite. By faith in Christ, then, it is a call to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Let me just show you this over multiple authors or multiple passages. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. You see this. Show you in multiple places this theme comes out of God's work. In 2 Corinthians 5, and this is when we embrace the gospel, when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when we have faith in Christ, God's intention and design is to take us out of conformity of the world and bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, starting here in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll start at verse 16. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says this, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Notice the description of the Christian life. We are separated. The old man is dead. The old man has passed away. We're now a new creation. No longer, again, conformed to this world. No longer conformed to the old man. We are now new in Christ. New things have come. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Paul continues this in Galatians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. In Paul's introduction to the Galatians, he's praying for them and greeting them says to them in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, now he's going to go and describe Christ. Look, he who gave himself for our sins. What has Christ done? He has laid himself down for our sins. Why? So the purpose clause there. So that he might rescue us from the present age according to the will of our God and Father. What has Christ come to do? He's come to rescue us from this present age. To rescue us from this present world, from this present time. And the same word there, own is demonstrated here. Paul says Christ has come to deliver us from this world. Turn over to chapter 2. You see this in verse 20. When Paul summarizing his commitment to the gospel of justification by grace through faith alone and its separation from the law and the power of the gospel to deliver, he says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What is the description of the Christian life? Just from these two passages, it is deliverance from the world and it is new life in Jesus Christ. We are conformed into his image. This is by God's design. Turn over to Ephesians, the next book. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13. In this particular section here, in Ephesians 4, it talks about Christ coming and giving to the church gifts. And as he pours out his gifts upon the church, and as those gifts minister to the body and equips the body, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Notice verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, notice, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God is at work in the church to conform God's people into the stature of Jesus Christ, the godly man, the fullness of Christ. 
This is part of the Christian life. It is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Two more passages. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. See this in Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 21. It says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So this is describing our former state. Was it that of rebellion, that of hostility, that of wickedness? Verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Notice the contrast. This is what you were. You were in rebellion. You were hostile. You were engaged in evil deeds. You were hostile in mind towards God, but now you are conformed into his image. You are holy and blameless before him. Christian Life is aimed towards conforming people into the image of Jesus Christ. Turn over, look over at verse 28. It's kind of Paul's summary in Colossians 1. His summary of his ministry purpose. This would be his ministry philosophy. It says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Notice, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What is God's aim? It is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now turn back to Romans 12. And we see this contrast then set up. Paul's exhortation. Do not be conformed to this world. You're going to be pulled in one direction or another. You're either going to reject God, reject his word, and he's going to turn you over to yourself and you'll be conformed to this world, or you're going to reject this world and you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those are the two paths. What is it going to be? The exhortation here that Paul says is, do not give yourself over to the, this age. Do not give it over. Well, think about this. Uh, it says, thinking about what is it that God's doing with his people? What is he doing that is, sets us apart from the world? What does God do particularly to shape us so that we're not conformed to this world, but conformed to his image? And I have at least 10 qualities here that I want to point, to you, point you to. You say, okay, I can look to say, do I see these qualities in me? Do I see these particular qualities in me? Then I know then I'm not being conformed to this world, but I'm being conformed to the image of God. If I see these qualities increasing in me, the first is this, holiness. Is there increasing holiness? Is there an increasing desire to be holy as God is holy, as we saw in our scripture reading this morning? A desire to be set apart, a desire to be different than the world, a desire to be like the living God. Or... Are you being influenced by the world, called into its image? What do you look like? Do you look holy and set apart? Holiness should be the increasing virtue of the believer. Secondly, mercy. Are you merciful? Do you show mercy? Are you withholding judgment because God has withheld judgment from you? Are you showing mercy to others? Compassionate in your response towards them. The world knows no mercy, no compassion. No mercy because it it just shows hatred and anger. God calls us to manifest his mercy. Third quality is see this world or see what God desires to produce within us is forgiveness. Forgiveness. God has been gracious to us, forgiven us our transgressions. He has poured out his loving kindness upon us, taken our debt out of the way, removed our debt from us. But this world knows no forgiveness. The world is filled with bitterness, anger, wrath, vengeance. The man of God, conformed him to the image of Christ, is filled with forgiveness. The other attribute that is demonstrated is atonement. God himself atones for our sins, and he himself provided, the, again, the sacrifice for our sins. But this age, this world practices self-atonement. 
by its own practices of religion, its own pursuits, its own personal sacrifices, tries to self-atone and reconcile themselves to God. No, in God's world, only God supplies the sufficient sacrifice, Christ. What else is God doing to conform us into his image? It's love. Do we love? Do you love like God? God calls us to demonstrate the kind of love that he demonstrates, which is selfless and sacrificial. That is not treating your desires greater than another, but you're actually treating others as more important than yourself. This is godly love. But you see this contrasted in the world today. The world is, you want to love? Look out for number one. My interests. I just learned to love myself, says the world. Contrast, we are pulled away from worldly desires by selflessly sacrificing and giving to others. Humility, the next way God conforms us to his image, he makes us humble people. Humble, as God says in James chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. But this doesn't work in today's world. Today's world is humility is seen as weakness. Humility means we trample over somebody and run them down. But in God's world, we, we recognize our lowliness, our inability, our weakness, and we cast ourselves upon God. God calls us to justice. God causes us to analyze the facts and cause us to gather the details before we make judgments. God causes us to uphold righteousness and to bring judgment upon wickedness. And God calls us to be impartial and exacting in the measurement of his justice because that's what he is. Our world today is partial. It's run by mob rule, hasty, inconsistent in its practice of what's right does not practice justice. God calls us to believe, to exercise faith. The spirit of this age says, I won't believe anything that unless I can see it and understand it and hold to it myself, God calls us to believe, to trust, to entrust ourselves to him. God calls us to practice truth. The world today says that we can't know anything. God calls us to an object of truth that is outside of ourselves. The world today says we find our individual truth. What's true for me? You might have your truth. I have my truth. We all have our own truth. There's no way we can know truth. But God says that he is truth. And what he speaks is true. And all people are called to his truth. It's outside of us. And of course, God calls us to godliness. To be like him. So what we talk about when being conformed to God is to be conformed to his holiness, to be conformed to his mercy, forgiveness, atonement, love, humility, justice, faith, truth, and godliness, which works against the world, which is seeking to conform us into its own image. So here in Romans 12 too, then, this command is significant. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be passive. Don't be yielding yourself passively to the world's pressures and desires because it's going to conform you into its image. It's going to shape you by its design. And because of this pull is real and because it is at work all around us, an inadequate faith is going to fail under the world's draws. You're shallow in your faith, you're not going to be able to resist. You kind of have an experiential temporal faith, you're not going to be able to resist. If you have a malnourished faith that isn't sanctified by the truth, you're not going to be able to resist. If you're expecting an emotional state to be there to resist, it's going to fail you. All of these are not going to help you in the day of trials or difficulty. You must have a faith that is marked by resisting the world. It's humble of mind, and it is a life lived of total surrender. These are the first three active elements in a robust, transforming faith. Now quickly, just as I conclude, let me give you three ways that you can 
evaluate if your own heart is being conformed by the world. Like, how would I know what it's happening would be the question. I can see it after the fact. I can see it when I fall short and I fail and I look back and I feel misery over my failure. But how do I spot it before it happens so I don't have to go through the failure? Well, three ways you can do that. Three strengths. The first is this. Evaluate your actions or evaluate whether your actions are based on principles or preferences. That's the first way. Are you a kind of person driven by preferences or principle? Is it your preferences that rule? I want my house to look this way. I want to look this way. I want to be this way. You, you exercise all of your personal preferences, thinking that somehow by those preferences you'll be safe from the world, or by principle. Can you go to the scriptures, open up the passage, point to the verse, and say, this is the direct teaching of the scripture that I am practicing? A principled life will be able to resist evil because a principled life knows the ways of God. It's a life filled with conviction. Personal preferences are going to be shaped by the world's values. Personal preferences are going to be shaped by the movies and environments we're watching and engaging in, and those preferences will change. Listen, we want those preferences to change. You ever go back and look at your old pictures of yourself and say, why in the world did I wear that? Yeah, you know the bell bottoms and the, uh, you know, all the hairstyles and all those things. And you're saying, what in the world was I thinking at that time? That was your preference. That's what you wanted. You liked it at that time. In fact, you actually enjoyed that. Unless, of course, you were a kid and then your parents enjoyed it. But once you were like an adult and you were operating, it's what you liked. And now you look back at it and say, what in the world was I thinking at that moment in time? Preferences. Versus principle. What is godly? What is righteous? What does God expect of me? And certainly there are times where God gives us freedoms and we enjoy those freedoms. But as a normal practice, we're driven to operate according to what the scriptures say. We seek to operate by principle first. And then where there's no principle, there's the freedom to operate in our preferences. That's the first way. Second is this. Actively Cultivate spiritual disciplines. Actively cultivate spiritual disciplines. If I want to be resisting the world, I'm going to be driven by principle, not preference. Secondly, I'm going to be cultivating spiritual disciplines, which means this. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be reading the scriptures, memorizing them. I'm going to be hiding them in my heart and meditating on the truth. I'm going to be thinking about what is true. I'm going to be practicing the spiritual disciplines of loving my neighbor, sharing the gospel, ministering to others, fasting in the time of trouble. I'm going to be doing all of these spiritual disciplines so that I am prepared to identify worldliness versus godliness, training my heart to believe what's right, to walk in what's right, casting my anxieties upon the Lord in prayer, treating the Lord for his favor, Seeking the Lord for understanding. Going to the scriptures to know the mind of God so I can think the thoughts of God after him. Hiding the word in my heart so when temptation comes, I can go to the scriptures and refute the scriptures and say like Christ did in, in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil tempted him, it is written. It is written. Here's what God says. If you want to resist the world, you are practicing spiritual disciplines because it if, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Romans 8 says. And then lastly, how do I safeguard my heart so I'm not conformed to this world? The answer is practice godly love. Practice love. 1 Corinthians 13 is clear. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Does not seek its own. and Does not act unbecomingly. It's the normal practice of love. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love seeks to walk in righteousness. We need to cultivate that kind of love. We too easily are drawn into the fears of this world, the lies of this world, the hatred that drives this world, and we are unloving when we do that, and we are drawn into worldliness because of that lack of love. In one passage, just... Look over at Philippians 
chapter 4. Look at this truth. Philippians chapter 4. Paul said this in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, notice, dwell on these things, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Why are we drawn into worldliness? Because we move away from dwelling on the things that are honorable and true and right and pure and lovely and good. We're not training our mind to delight in love. We're consumed by the world's fears, consumed by the world's worries, consumed by the world's unbelief, and in those moments we drift away and are conformed into its image. But that's not who we are. We delight in the things that are true. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we recognize that the world so easily conforms us and just attaches itself to our fears and draws them out, provokes within us those jealousies, it provokes within us unbelief, it entices our own anxieties. We're so thankful for your marvelous work that your word comes along, sanctifies our hearts and minds, transforms us. It grows us so that we are able to resist and we are conformed into the image of Christ. And we get to walk in this world just as he walked with devotion to you, a love to do your will, a desire to understand the truth, yielding to the Spirit in all things. And in the midst of this, we find ourselves slowly conformed to your image. We're thankful for your work among us that when we do live like the world, you bring immediate conviction, immediate guilt and shame. You expose the evil fruits within us and we become aware and desire to resist. We're thankful that you are merciful and patient with us, thankful that you've demonstrated your rich forgiveness towards us to rescue us so that we are set free. We just pray now that we would heed Paul's command here and actively become aware of the ways in which the various pressures around us are seeking to pull upon us. Not naively thinking somehow that we're autonomous and free, but aware, painfully aware, of the various pressures and dangers around us so that we are sober-minded and careful in all we're doing. So strengthen this body of Christ to be sober-minded and encouraging one another and to be filled with your virtues so that we're conformed into your marvelous image, rejoicing in your continued work among us. So that the marks of faith will be true among us, that we are willingly yielding ourselves, humble of mind towards one another, and dedicated entirely to you to not be conformed to this world, but to be conformed to your image. In all of this, we look to rejoice in the effects of, that it will produce in our lives the peaceful fruit of righteousness and the strong assurance of faith that comes from the testimony of your grace in our heart and life. And all this, again, we thank you for the ministry of your word to us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.